Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on our second episode of Peace Talks. I'm Eric. I'm Heather, and this is going to be a mostly me talking episode. I'm going to take you guys through the life of Dame Angela Lansbury. So, oh, that's what we're we doing. <laughs> yes, that's what we're doing. Yes. You told me to pick a topic. Well, so that's I what we were I chose. Lead away from like, I guess, well, it's pop culture type stuff, which is mm-hmm. fine. Yeah, it's, it's only episode two. We're okay. we're fine. We yeah. got. We're gonna try. We're gonna change up the format every once in a while. We're gonna see what fits because right now she's gonna go do an episode. The next week, I'll I'll try to do an episode. Yeah, there are literally no rules to this. We're nope. just talking. All we're right. Just, you you tuned in ahead. for a couple talking. That's what we're doing. Yeah. If you want to go ahead and get started, let's let's. I'll listen in on how what what's going on with life with Angela Lansbury. All right. So if you're anything like me, then your love affair with Angela Lansbury started with the television show Murder. She wrote. Um, just that's a, that's not where I started. That's my, not where. No, no, mine was bed knobs and broomsticks. Nice. I remember from that from the seventies. That was pretty awesome. One. Yeah, uh, just an amazing actress. Um, and I kind of rekindled that romance after seeing Pushing Up Roses, a YouTube channel that does retrospectives of episodes of Murder She Wrote. Um, my primary data source was a book called Magic of Believing, a Lansbury family memoir written by Edgar Lansbury. Uh, her little brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Angela's younger well, brother. Well, and I also, yeah. <laughs> I also uh, listened to a lot of her interviews and a podcast episode of On and Off the Record by Adrian Fuchs, in which he discusses Angela Lansbury's career. But I am going back even further. Our tale is going to start in 1895. Why? She's not that old. <laughs> She's let's, not born yet. No. That's when Charlotte Lillian Nickeldowie. The mother of Angela Lansbury was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, on December 10th of 1895. They lived in a place called Sandymont. That was the name of their house. This is back when they named their houses. I feel like we should name our house. I, I like that. Peace House. Peace House. <laughs> just call it Peace House. Yeah, Peace um, House would work. So she was basically living in Northern Ireland and at... About 1904, the Abbey Theatre of Dublin was finally built. It was a very elite cultural establishment, and her father, uh, William Mickledowie, the grandfather of Angela Lansbury, absolutely loved the theatre. He was just a fanatic for the theatre and wanted to help so much with such a wonderful establishment. In 1907, Charlotte uh, started attending the Scarsborough Boarding School in England with her sister Margaret, otherwise known as Mars, then in her teen years, her father noticed that she had an aptitude for the arts, so he enrolled her in Slade School of Fine Arts in London. In 1915, when Charlotte was only 19 years old, she met and fell in love with Reginald Denham. Reggie joined Charlotte at the Ulster Hall in Belfast, and she arranged for him to write music for her. So he was also an artistic type of person. He would write, he was a composer and a writer, and he would write musicals for her to sing and perform. She, so she was, comes from a, a uh, art family. Yeah, Charlotte okay. is very much from an art family, and Reginald Reggie was... That's her father, a, right? No, no Reginald's her boyfriend. Okay, who was the father? William. William, okay. But yeah. he, William had a thing for... William loved the arts, okay. yes. Okay. Loved the theater, huge supporter. However, William was not a huge supporter of Reginald. Oh, she he like, he like thought he was a lazy loser for wanting to make a career in the theater, which that's was just like so this, hypocritical, that's... though, because he was making a living in the theater. Oh, was he? Yes. Oh, okay. William was working in the theater. He and then he's want... like, I don't want my daughter he marrying wanted... some weird theater yeah, guy. The so, yeah. Someone like the father. So. Um, but they were young and in love. And Charlotte invited Reginald to stay at their house so he could meet her family. And um, unable to control their libidos, they ended up having sex while staying at the house. And William, the father, was like horrified and angry. And the kids tried to deny it, and he held up the soiled bed sheets and screamed, screaming that it was ocular proof, (laughs) calling it ocular proof that they had sex. And so, um, when Charlotte told her children this story later in life, they were teenagers, and she shared this story, and the phrase ocular proof became like a running joke among the family <laughs> for, for uh, sexual activities. All right. So um, after dealing with the judgment of her father, they decided the best thing that they could do was just leave Belfast and settle in London, you know, not even bother with uh, William and his judgment. Accent, so uh, they decided to get married in 1917 when Charlotte was about 22 years old. Mm-hmm. which i mean you were only 23 when we got married so yeah 
Is that right? Yeah. So we were married in not seven? Yeah, I yeah. hadn't turned 20, 24. Yeah, you hadn't turned. Until yeah. December. That's right. All right. So at the time, there was a great deal of turmoil in Europe. The Great War had ended, uh, but it still was a difficult time. And Charlotte decided she was going to join the Women's Social and Political Union, later known as the Women's Party, that was led by an Emmeline Pankhurst who is the founder of the suffrage movement in England. You know, very, very famous woman. Uh, she attempted to gain more people to her cause by wanting to join the Independent Labor Union, which was founded by Care Hardy in 1893. Unfortunately, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst was denied membership because she was a woman! You're not a man. You can't be member of our Labor Party it unless happens. you're a man. So, a lot. uh and the man that rejected her was the leader of the Labour Party at the time, George Lansbury. And that was... George Lansbury was a very famous socialist who was also the mayor of Poplar. Um, and, you know, just did a lot so of work with the socialist movement. George Angela's dad? Or... What? I'm confused. Yes, you are. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's a lot of too many names. Too many names. So she was Charlotte. Okay. Angela's mother was mother. a member of the socialist movement. And she was with somebody named Reggie. And she's married to Reggie Dunham. And, and that's she not a is... Lansbury yet. No. So why wouldn't Angela's... So they are working in the socialist movement okay. um, and attending a lot of socialist events, including a cricket match where George Lansbury and his son, Edgar Lansbury, Edgar's were in attendance. Now, Edgar and George together started off the Poplar Rates Rebellion, uh, which diverted a bunch of money that was supposed tax money that was supposed to be going to the government and instead handed it to the poor people of London um, and started to argue for new laws and uh, new poor laws is actually what they're called in London. And the Poplar <clears throat> Rates Rebellion ended up with the entire Poplar City Council being imprisoned for six weeks. That was 21 men, including George and his son Edgar Lansbury, and six women, which included Edgar's wife Minnie. Now, unfortunately, Minnie got pneumonia and died while in prison in this six weeks period. But the love affair between Edgar and Charlotte had apparently already begun. Oh no, what about Reggie? I know, right? She's terrible. She, they, I don't yeah. like her mom. Her mom She's, sucks. Yeah, <laughs> she just cheats a lot. I'm out. Um, so in their love affair had started in the early 1920s, but prior to that... Uh, Charlotte actually quit going by the name Charlotte in 1918. Charlie? No. Oh. In 1918, she appeared on the Globe Theater in a play called Love in a Cottage. It was her first major role. And Frank Curzon and Gerald DeMara insisted that Charlotte was way too long of a name okay. to be putting on the marquee. So they it's had her two syllables. <laughs> so they had her change her name to Moina McGill. That's the same amount. What? Moina? Moina. Not Mona? No. Moina. M-O-Y-N-I. Not Mora or something like that. No. It's Moina. M-O-Y-N-A. That's a stupid choice. They call her Mo. That's even worse. <laughs> so, now going by the name of Moina, no longer Charlotte, uh, she is continuing her acting career, but also starting a love affair with Edgar Lansbury. In... You go by Eddie? No, I, I think he went... went by Edgar. Ugh. Eddie was a cooler so, name. After being released from prison... Uh, George, the father of Edgar, became the first commissioner of works and uh, decided that Hyde Park should be open to the public. So thank you for that. And also Edgar became mayor of Poplar. In 1923, Moya asked for a divorce. She no longer wanted to be married and she left Reggie and they, she took their four-year-old daughter, oh Isolda, gosh, and what? left him. Yes. Ugh. She gave birth to a four-year-old daughter from very, Reggie. very soon from after getting Reggie. married. Yes. With Reggie. Yes. It's Reggie's daughter. Yes, it's she Reggie's daughter. stole her from him. Well, she took her and moved in with Edgar. Edgar. Ugh. Yes. No, um, no, I can't. So, yes. By October of 1923, they were divorced, and Isolde and Edgar and Moina were all living together, and they got married, Moina and Edgar, in September of 1924. They settled into a garden flat in London in Regent's Park. Now, in February of 1925, 
Um, Moina realized she was pregnant, and on October 16th, 1925, she gave birth to Angela Lansbury. Dang, her first she, daughter she with, old? yes, 1925, 1925 was when Angela Lansbury was born. And she was That's, the was first child 22? of Moyna and uh, Edgar Lansbury. Lansbury, huh? She died in 22, right? Or this year? What? What year did uh, she die? 2022. Okay. So the Lansbury family had long owned the Stratford Mill, which was the primary income source for the family, and continued to own it and was able to pull it out of near bankruptcy after World War I by getting a contract to do all the plywood paneling on the RMS Queen Mary. Now that the couple was financially sound, they arranged to have their own house built on Weymouth Avenue in Mill Hill, just outside of central London. So in the 30s, Moyna gave birth to two boys, twin boys, which they named Edgar and Bruce. So now there's an Edgar Jr. Um, in the mix. Are you okay? I'm trying to... Okay. So Charlotte's Moyna now. She didn't... Yes. So her why? name is now Moyna. She's going to be Moyna for the rest of her why? life. Why? Because it was easier to spell. What? McGill is easier to spell than Mickledowie. That makes sense. Yeah. But still, she yeah. couldn't just go by Charlotte still? No. They, they didn't want her to be Charlotte. They wanted her to be Moyna. It's different. I guess. Yeah. Doesn't really matter. It's more Irish, I guess. Yeah. So. That'll be like Mora. In 1930s, the twin boys were born, and uh, Moina was loving being the mayoress, the wife of the mayor, and they were having a wonderful time. Edgar Sr. managed to use his power to have two streets renamed, Edgar Street and Bruce Street, after his two sons in the Poplar area. Are they still named that? Yes, I believe so. Oh, cool. Does Angela have a street, though? No. She's a what? girl. She's a girl. You don't name a street after a girl. Are that's, you insane? You're a woman. You can't be part of the enough. Labor Party. All right. All right. Enough. Um, in 1931, unfortunately, William Mickledowie, Moyna's dad, ended up dying of uh, pernicious anemia, and he was never able to meet Edgar and Bruce. It was a devastating time for Moyna, and she turned to spiritualism and started holding regular seances uh, in the house, uh, trying to get in touch with her dead dad. Um, charlatans. <laughs> her Houdini proved that. Her mother, uh, Moyna's mother, Elizabeth Jane, moved to London to be closer to the family. Um, I don't think you mentioned the mother at all since you started well, this. Did she not have a big part in her life? Cause you mentioned... Well, she has a big part in... Angela's young life, but okay. she's she, she was just pretty. a mom from the 1800s. Mm. Yeah, in the book *The Magic of Believing*, there there's a fun little expert about the boys Edgar and Bruce trying to try on their grandmother's wedding dress when they were only like five years old, but not being able to put the corset because her waist was so severely cinched, because ah. that was the style in the 1800s that yeah. five-year-old boys couldn't put it on. Wow. So yeah, crazy times, weird, weird, weird world that we live in. But because people died with those. Yes. With Corson's on, they died. Couldn't breathe. Could not breathe. Isilda, in the meantime, was off to attend St. Ives School. Who was that? The older sister. Uh, Remember Reggie and Moina? That's who, okay. Yeah, Reggie and Molda had a daughter named Isolda. Isolda, Angela, and then Edgar Bruce Jr. and Edgar. Um, was Edgar Jr. last? Edgar Jr. was first, and then Bruce was that's, the baby. That's why I always said Edgar Jr. first. Yeah, Edgar then. Jr., then the baby Bruce. Okay. okay. Um, Given Moina's turn towards spiritualism and the twins being very closely bonded twins and uh, Isolde being identical off at school. Identical. Oh, cool. um, Angela felt kind of alone and connected greatly with her dad in this time. She was very much a dad's girl. They would go on long walks together. Um, Edgar, by all accounts, was a fantastic dad. Stayed in touch with Isolde. Very much welcomed her as his own daughter and paid for all of her tuition. And Did... Reggie get to meet, they hang out and have visitations with his daughter at all? Reggie daughter? actually moves to America. What? And is going to be coming back later in the story. Oh, okay. But. Um, After Angela gets famous, I want all her money. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? You're not my daughter. All right. So, you're not my dad. You're not my dad. <laughs> so Angela loves spending time with her grandmother, who was the first person to introduce her to films. Very first person to introduce her to the cinema. She would take... Angela to see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers yes, movies. That's and exactly what I would imagine is the only ones they had during yeah, the 30s. Ginger Rogers became a heroine for young Angela and gave her the desire to learn to dance and sing. Mm. Now, Moina decided at this point in her life she needed to return to the stage. 
Um, but unfortunately, Edgar Sr. started to have some stomach pains. Oh, no. So first he was diagnosed with nervous indigestion and put on a milk diet, which did not help. Then uh, somebody else said it's a dudenal ulcer, Mm -hmm. and they put him on treatment for ulcer, and that didn't help. And then Mm -hmm. somebody else said it's hyaluric stenosis, and no, you are absolutely right. In 1935, he was hospitalized with stomach cancer. And he died in May of 1935 when he was oh, only 48 years sad. old, leaving the Lansbury family without uh, a patriarch. She better not go back to Reggie. So that's going to be really <laughs> uh, after uh, Edgar Senior's death. Moina was in charge of financially taking care of Oof. the family. Four kids. And all oh, the four kids. Right now, Isolda is off at boarding school still at this point in their lives. And they moved, they sold the house on Mill Hill to cover all of the medical expenses that had been incurred from Edgar Sr.'s hospitalization and moved into a little rental place on Awkward Road in Hampstead. Isolde finished school and decided she wanted to pursue a career in acting and joined the London Theatre School in Islington. In the meantime, Angelo was enrolled in South Hempstead High School for Girls and remained there for about three years. The family spent regular summer vacations off on Achill Island near uh, in Ireland, uh, staying in little cottages with no electricity and, you know, no running water, just really roughing it you know, on this little island. Um, Moina was really, really struggling to manage the family and manage her grief. And so uh, Angela's grandmother... Elizabeth, otherwise known as Sissy, uh, ended up paying tuition for both Angela and Isolda out of the remaining money that she had after William's passing. The summer of 1936 is the time that Angela had stated as her last moments of childhood. Her and her sister... She's 11 years old. Yep. Oh. 11 years old. Her and her sister Isolda um, took a vacation to Atchill Island, just the two of them, and they got to play on the hills and have she, fun in well, Ireland. Was her sister only like four years older than she was? Yep. So she was so, 15 and... Uh, no, 16. She was 16. She 11 was, and 16. And they went on a trip by themselves? Yes. What? Yes. This is the 1930s. What? They were just on a trip to Ireland, just the oh, two of them, to my, this cottage, kids, to and just having some fun. And this was the last days of her childhood, but she also cites it as the time that she learned to live without her dad. Mm. Um, in 1937, Moina fell in love with a man named Lecky Forbes, and... His Lecky, name was Lecky. Lecky. L-E-C-K-I-E. Lecky. No, his name wasn't Lecky. His name is Lecky. Lecky. And Lecky's wife, Kay, was super happy about it. What? Because she just fucking hated her husband oh, and was no. so glad that he had somebody else to bother. And So did they stay together while they Oh, no, they got divorced. Okay, good. So yeah, Kay, Kay's like, I'm just fucking just leaving this guy. I just need an out. Um, and Lecky became the center of Moina's social life. And they moved all the kids into the house that Lucky Forbes owned that was called the Kinderpoor Gardens. And they lived there for nearly three years. Angela is quoted as saying, we couldn't stand him and he couldn't stand us. He was Lucky Forbes. Yes, their stepfather was a very intense man, a very demanding man. Um, And even though his presence relieved the financial burden uh, that they had been suffering the, he was just a horrible guy to live with. No, they weren't married. They weren't married. So Moina was just living just with Lucky with the three kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, Isolda the magic. Was already gone. She was. Isolda is off in the school at, of London. At Sixteen doing that. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Just wanting to pursue on, an actor on, 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 on her own. own. Just you know, leaving this place and didn't want to live with him. She actually got a part in a Christmas pantomime, uh, playing a flying mermaid, and said. You know, I'm out. I'm not. I'm not living with any of you people. So when she got her first acting role, she moved out immediately. Well, it paid well. That's yeah. crazy. Well, lived enough for her to live alone, or live with a theater group. Mm. Now Edgar did uh, recall one story in his book. This, Again, this is, this is my, Edgar Junior. Right? Edgar Junior okay. is my primary source for most of my data in his book, The Magic of Believing, and he did recount one story in which the kids had a dog a bloodhound named Pluto who had somehow gotten into Forbes's library and started chewing on all the leather bound books because they're leather bound and it's a bloodhound and Forbes proceeded to beat the dog for over an hour. He didn't kill it? No, the dog didn't die, but he, mm-hmm. he did beat it for a 
incredibly long, long duration time. of time just over anger over the damage to his books so during this time moina tried to get back into acting work she was part of a production called killy craig's in twilight but the impending war had a very negative effect on both the arts in London and also on the Stratford Mill, which now belonged to Moyna, which was the, still their primary income source. Uh, struggling to keep the mill up and running and to revive her acting career, she turned to alcohol, which mm. is something that she apparently did quite a bit in her life. So in September 1939, Germany invaded Poland and England and France declared war two days later. Moyna joined an effort and in uh, and served as an ambulance driver in 1939. Cool. Yeah. Now, Edgar and Bruce were sent to schools, and a lot of the schools in London at the time were evacuated to Cornwall, and that is where the boys were staying. Now, Moyna also wanted Angela to be evacuated. She was very, very nervous about London being attacked by the Germans, but Angela, feeling very close to her mother as at age 13, utterly refused to leave London, and she enrolled instead in the Weber Douglas School of Singing and Dramatic Arts on a scholarship and stayed close to her mother, as close to her mother as she could. Now, Edgar Jr. describes Angela as being the older sister that tried to behave more grown up than she was. So at 13 years old, she was defying her mother and insisting on staying mm. in London. Christmas of 1939 was the last Christmas the Lansbury family would spend in London for a very, very long time. They all gathered together. This includes Bruce, Edgar Jr., Angela, Isolda, Isolda's fiance, Peter Stinoff, um, his parents, who were Russian escapees from the Stalin purges, Moina, her lover, Lucky Forbes, Lucky Forbes' sons, Patrick, with Patrick's new wife and baby, and Malcolm, and the grandma Elizabeth, were all hanging out at Kidderpore Gardens together. And it was a great day of fun that it was their last Christmas in London. The spring of the following year, the German army will have, would have driven English and French forces back to Dunkirk, which lands us in the 1940s. Mm. Yes. Moving right along. It yeah. is moving right along. <laughs> go for another 80 years. Yes. So Grandpa George Lansbury at this time is still working in Parliament and still attempting to negotiate peace between German and English forces, which obviously didn't go very well. And he ended up dying in 19, May of 1940 from stomach cancer, with the final request that his ashes be spread in international waters. Throughout the 1940s, Moina had been secretly working on a project that involved getting out of both London and her relationship with Lucky Forbes. She was wanting to leave, but and didn't want him lucky, to know. It still sounds like lucky. I know, it's Lucky. lucky it's a weird name. Lucky so is Moina, but that's okay. Yeah. So, although he provided financial security, she, Moina is quoted as saying, he drove me mad over his lack of imagination. She did not like that he was a businessman. She wanted to be with an artist. So, the planning gave Moina some positive focus. And in spring of 1940, as a stroke of luck, at the wedding of Isolde and Peter, um, Moina was able to meet Peter's grandmother, Lady Norton, who had been arranging to evacuate children out of London using a boat called the RMS Duchess Athol. Now, Moina was able to convince Lady Norton that Bruce, Edgar, and Angela all qualified as children, and that the best possible thing she could do is to hire Moina to serve as a mother-slash-guardian-slash-caretaker of all the evacuees. So Lady Norton agreed that all four, that is Edgar Jr., Bruce, Angela, and Moina, could all book passage on the RMS Duchess of Thole and leave London for the United States. But Moyna was still very, very afraid that Forbes would try to stop them. She had not told them anything about this plan. He had no idea that they were planning to just up and leave. Yep. Yeah. And then the kids got the mumps. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. All three of the kids came all down with the mumps. mumps. They all got the mumps. The mumps spreads very quickly. And in order to avoid getting sick, Forbes decided to uh, stay out of the house and visit the countryside for a few weeks. After a couple of weeks, the kids got better, but Forbes was still out of town. So Moina grabbed all of the kids and they, and they ran. They just up and left. 
On August 17th, they fled by train to Southampton, and later that afternoon, they boarded the boat and never saw Lucky again. They're off to a new life in America. And this is still 1940? This is still 1940. This is all 1940. This is a desperate escape in 1940. Mm. On the seventh day of the journey, they spotted Canada, and Moyna took out the urn that she had been carrying with her and uh, spread Edgar Senior's ashes all over the international water because that way he could be with his grandfather, or with his father, George Lansbury. It's Angela's grandfather, sorry. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> now, the original plan was that a financial benefactor named a Mr. Charles T. Wilson would be helping to pay for kids to be evacuated out of London on the RMS Duchess of Thole, and then they would be housed on one of the spare homes that Mr. Wilson owned. He apparently owned an apartment in New York and two houses in upstate New York and was going to house the kids, the evacuee children. But due to increased U-boat activity, the Lansbury family was the last family to be evacuated on the RMS Duchess of Thole. It did serve to... Uh, the boat did serve to carry goods and other materials to help the war effort, but was eventually sunk in 1942 in the southern Atlantic. Mm. But the Lansburys managed to land in Quebec, where they were immediate, immediately met by Reggie Denham. That's the, that's that's the ex-husband, okay. who is now engaged to Mary Orr and is very happy. Mm. Uh, Reggie has Man, been Mary working. Who? Mary Orr. Who's Mary Orr? It's his fiance. Oh, the name is Mary Orr. <laughs> the name is Mary Orr. <laughs> I was like, okay. um, yes, Reggie went on to have a fantastic career uh, writing in New York and doing films and co-writing. Uh, he became known as the man of a hundred plays. Mm. He had a great successful career throughout the 40s and 50s. And apparently had been writing letters to Moyna and re- they were friends. So he introduced her to Mr. Charles T. Wilson, who gave her a $150 a week allowance to help care for his lake house where she would be staying with her children. Again, at this point, they were hoping to have more child evacuees, but that never ended up Mm. manifesting. Now, Moyna was a little bit nervous because when they arrived at this new Putnam estate in upstate New York, um... The maid was Irish and served them green tea. And as an English person, Moyna knew that had to be an insult, an anti-British insult to serve green tea. So, you know, aside from some conflicts with the maid that was at the house, they they ended up living quite happily. Angela thought it was an absolutely beautiful home. And Moyna immediately got to work advocating for her children and having them sent to school including um, having Angela sent to the Fegan School of Dramatics, Radio, and Arts in Rockefeller Center. But being unable to afford the train passage back and forth, um, Moyna attended some social gatherings and some parties and was able to beg and borrow for a Mrs. George Perkins to let Angela stay in her New York City apartment. Um, Angela is quoted as saying, I didn't buy one single new thing during those years. It was so strange, having no money at all, and yet living in this incredible and generous Perkins household in a grand townhouse on East 94th Street. So basically, they were begging their way through the U.S. and doing a very, very good job of it. Once it became known that Moyna and Angela were actresses, they were asked to perform um, in a local amateur production called Pure as Driven Snow. And it was a hit. They were a hit comedic duo. Everybody loved them and would regularly invite them to parties um, where they would, you know, chat and work up their social network. They were still in constant contact via mail with Isoldi, who is still in London with her husband, Peter, and being very active in the theater scene until the day that Peter was uh, drafted into the British Army. But luckily, he was transferred into the Army Film Unit and stationed just outside of London so he could still see Isolde. In 1941, Moina decided that it was time to restart her career because she had not been allowed to earn any money because she did not have a working visa at this point. So she went to the U.S. government and applied for a working visa so that she could, you know, talk with the U.S. immigration authorities. In in late 1941, her number was finally called up and they said that she could get a work visa, but she had to leave the U.S. and then re-enter on a quota. So the Lansbury family spent Christmas in Canada with a former classmate from Slade, from Moyna's early school days back in Belfast. 
and then was able to re-enter the U.S. with a work visa so that she could get a job. In 1942, she opened on Broadway in a play by Emlyn Williams called Yesterday's Magic. And during her... <clears throat> and just, you know, started to try to earn money again. At this point, the boys are off at a boarding school, and Angela is still at Fegan. So she was discovered for having a fantastic uh, talent for comic mimicry and singing, and a classmate of hers named Arthur Bourbon arranged for Angela to have an audition with an agent who immediately hired her to entertain at New York Hot Mondeau parties and various nightclubs. This was when she was only 16 years old. Mm. So at the age of 16, Angela was being sent off to these parties to entertain guests and make sure that everybody was laughing and having a good time. As this was happening, Moina was still touring with a production of Noel Coward's Tonight at 8.30. Her initial plan was to return to New York after the tour, but instead, when the tour reached Victoria, Canada, Moina ran south to L.A. For, so she could audition for Commando's Strike at Dawn. Moina had a lot of friends from her Belfast days still successfully living in Hollywood and used her connections to start making moves to have Angela move out there with her. Unfortunately, the family still did not have a lot of money. The war really taxed them a lot, and they had been begging and borrowing for years at this point. <clears throat> Angela did receive a three-week engagement at a Club Samovar in Montreal, where it was basically a cabaret show. And she it was the only time she ever did work like that. She was 16 years old, but she was telling everyone she was 19, um, just entertaining in the cabaret world. And she said it was an important experience for her career, but definitely not the career path that she would have wanted to follow. She returned to New York from Montreal after the three-week engagement um, and eventually ended up saving up enough money to move to Hollywood with mm -hmm. Moina. So... Bruce and Edgar were still in boarding school. They were at the Cody School in Connecticut. And Angela saved up enough cash to take a train ride and wound up landing in California on October 3rd, just shy of her 17th birthday. Now, the couple, mother-daughter duo, did find a lot of trouble finding work. It was not as easy as Moina's eternal optimism had made it seem. Uh, there was a lot of... Um, concern about immigrants taking jobs and this actors equity group trying to block immigrants from working so Angela and Moina ended up getting regular jobs and Angela was a cashier and gift wrapper at Bullock's Wilshire where she was earning enough money to cover their expenses and put a little into savings so that Bruce and Edgar Jr. could come and visit on the Christmas holiday. Moina still worked her social network um, acting in small skits and reciting poems. At uh, one party, she met a handsome young actor by the name of Michael Dine, who was scheduled to do a screen test for the picture of Dorian Gray. And once he met Angela Lansbury, he thought she would be perfect for the role, role of Sybil Vane, provided that she could sing. Because mm -hmm. at this point, he had no idea whether or not she could sing. Bruce and Edgar uh, spent the summer holiday in California and begged their moms to, to live closer. They felt like Connecticut was way too far away from the family. And they were enrolled in the California Preparatory School for Boys in Ojai, California, the following school year. As promised, Michael Dine told Mel Ballerino, the executive in charge of casting at MGM, about Angela. And she came in for an interview, and he immediately thought she was perfect to pay the Cockney maid in Gaslight. Mm. So they did a screen test, they did the film, he said they'd get back with her, and then she heard nothing for weeks. For weeks and weeks and weeks, she was just sitting around waiting, wondering what was going on. And it turns out that Louis B. Mayer, who was in charge of whether or not anyone got the role, was in the East Coast watching his horses at the Kentucky Derby. And when he returned, he watched all of the short film that had been done in his absence and immediately said, sign that girl. Mm. <clears throat> Now, this was the biggest thing to happen to the Lansbury family. This was the first success that they've had since coming to America. And she was, Angela Lansbury was signed on a seven-year contract, starting at $500 a week for the first year. That is a significant Gosh. amount of money. <laughs> Very significant amount of money. So their three years of borrowing and begging, um, you know, finally was over and the family could afford to live. Gaslight was due to start filming in early 1944. 
And Angela also received the role of Sybil Vane in Picture of Dorian Gray and a role in National Velvet. Uh, she earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her work in Gaslight. And was able to move the entire family into a three-bedroom house in Sierra Alta Way with a lovely garden for Moina and Angela to work in together. Now, this also brought career opportunities for Moina. She convinced MGM to sign Moina onto a one-year contract and gave her, Moina, a lot of small roles in films that Angela was doing. Interestingly, MGM also wanted to sign on Bruce and Edgar, but Angela and Moina both agreed that the boys were only 13 years old and wanted them to have a childhood, although Angela really didn't get much of one. So, the filming of The Picture of Dorian Gray finally began in 1945. Her work on the film earned her a Golden Globe and made her famous for singing Goodbye Little Yellowbird um, and another Academy Award nomination. Dang. Yeah. In 1945, the Germans finally surrendered to the Allied forces, and in September of 1945, Japan surrendered, marking the end of World War II. By early 1945, Angela had started dating Richard Cromwell, whose birth name was Roy Radaba, but Richard Cromwell was his stage acting name. Uh, she was 19 years old, and Richard was 34 years old. Mm. <clears throat> she was head over heels in love, and... Um, she was introduced to all these famous actors. They went to all these wonderful parties. You know, she just absolutely loved him. And they were a very social couple. They were working, building their connections in the industry. And in 1946, um, Angela did not win the Academy Award for the portrait of Dorian, the picture of Dorian Gray. It was just a nomination. And um, Moina was furious because she felt like Richard wasn't paying enough attention to Angela at this party. That after such a devastating loss... Richard should have been more attentive. All right. But just a few months later, Angela came home and found a note sitting on the piano that said, I'm sorry, darling. I just can't go on. Her husband killed himself? No, he was gay. What? She had no idea. He was a homosexual man, and it was the 1940s, mm. and uh, she just did not know. She kind of suspected later on that maybe her mother had known, um, but that was never officially confirmed mm. but he had lied about his sexuality and angela is quoted as saying it was the biggest emotional punch that i ever experienced not the fact of his homosexuality but his leaving like that he was my first great great romance and it was a terrible tragedy so in an interview in 2014 angela mentioned that she's not sure how but they were able to salvage a friendship after a while okay that's weird. yeah well i mean she just wanted honesty she really loved him. Whatever. Also, he was 34 and she was only 19. Yeah, that's a so big gap between she, you she and had some. She also uh, was quoted as saying, um, this is not a direct quote, that uh, she that Richard Cromwell might have been in love with Sybil Vane, her character from the picture of Dorian Gray, oh, rather okay. than her. Alright. So, in August of 1946, after only 11 more months of marriage, Angela divorced Richard. So with the divorce and the losses of the Academy Award and MGM's continued insistence that she only be cast in small roles and never the lead, uh, Angela decided that she really just needed a change of pace and a change of lifestyle. So she decided to buy a new, more modern home in Rustic Canyon, which is close to Santa Monica. Moina and Angela worked together to make the house beautiful and kind of worked to repair their relationship and help with Angela with her hurt feelings after the divorce. Since the war had ended, Isolde was finally able to visit, you know, finally able to easily leave London, and she was able to bring her baby girl Tamara to come along. So Peter and Isolde had a little sweet baby girl Tamara, and they both managed you don't know to survive. Sweet. Don't act like it's a sweet baby girl. You don't know. All right. She could be a murderer. No. Cyclical. That definitely would have made it into the news. You don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, Edgar Jr. Sister. recounted it as a very, very joyous time after having spent six years apart that the family could finally be together again. Mm. In December of 1946, Heard Hartfield uh, set Angela up in a blind date with a man named Peter Shaw, a former classmate of Peter Ustonov, who is Isolde's husband from Westminster School in London. Uh, Angela and Peter Shaw immediately hit it off. Peter was in the process of getting divorced and had a two-year-old son living in England. And 
Angela was attracted to both his physique and his blunt honesty regarding his marriage and child and everything else. You know, I think it was very refreshing after her marriage to Richard Cromwell. Yeah. By early 1947, uh, Peter was considered the newest member of the household. He had practically moved in to Angela's home in Rustic Canyon. But unfortunately, Peter's acting career was not doing well. In spite of Angela's influence and uh, pulling strings to get him screen tests at MGM, he just couldn't act. Angela was quoted as saying, Darling, I love you very much, but an actor you aren't. And MGM completely agreed and dropped his contract. Moyna's contract with MGM was also terminated. And after... I uh, forgot she was... Yeah, she was even with MGM. She was working with Angela, remember? Um, And after a brief visit with uh, grandmother Elizabeth in England, uh, Moyna decided to return to the stage and act in a Tennessee Williams one-act play, Portrait of a Madonna. So Moyna has decided that film is not for her and she's back to stage acting. Mm -hmm. Angela continued to be cast in supporting roles, including Madame M in The Harvey Girls, in which she had the opportunity to show off her well-toned body and gained the nickname Legs Lansbury. However, the singing required for the part was dubbed over by Virginia Reese because the studio was ignorant of Angela's raw musical talent. In later Mm -hmm. interviews, Angela admits that her singing voice was untrained at that point in her career, and she was able to train and improve her voice over time with work. Mm -hmm. But she was still deeply frustrated because she was just never cast as a leading lady. At age 22, she played a middle-aged shrewish wife of Walter Pigeon. Middle-aged? Yeah, at age 22 in If Winter she Comes. Old, you got an old face. <laughs> you got so. an old face, Angel Lansbury. And she said that she was mature for her age because having grown up in World War II meant that everyone had to mature quickly. So but she did feel... like a year or two. Yeah, but she still had to live and beg and live I apart from her guess. mom. And yeah. So, children were just growing up quickly. Mm-hmm. In 1948, at age 23, uh, she played Kay Thorndike, a 45-year-old newspaper publisher in the State of the Union. Okay. Angela is quoted as saying, I had an air of maturity that seemed to be able to infuse into my youthful talent. It was a peculiar talent. I don't think I was even aware of how peculiar it was. Now, when I look back, I'm quite sort of boggled by it. So yeah. she she was a very young woman playing much much well, older like women. Knobs and broomsticks. She was already in her close to fifty years old by then. Yeah. So I don't know if she seemed like she was in her fifties though. <laughs> Maybe she seemed older because it's, it's, it's So meanwhile, Moina was being considered by uh, Jack Minster for a role in the London production of Martin Coleman's play Wonders Never Cease. She was told that she needed to convince Ian Hunter to play the principal male role or she would not get the part. So that was a serious blow to her ego. And the on-again, off-again nature of the production really strained Moya. She turned back to alcohol and tried to force herself to work, but Minister uh, Jack Minister was a, apparently a horrible person to work with. And even though she did receive the part and got great reviews on opening night, she opted not to tour with the play and instead decided to spend time with Isolda, who had been decided to leave her husband Peter because she had um, fallen in love with an aviation journalist named Derek Dempster. Oh my gosh, these people. These people. <laughs> it's great these times. People. In the spring of 1949, Angela proposed marriage to Peter Shaw. So, very, yeah, she proposed. Okay. Yeah. And they wanted to get married in London, but Angela was still under contract with MGM, and they were reluctant to let her leave. It took until July to finally receive permission to leave the country so that she could go off and get married. But the Church of England would not condone marriage between divorced individuals, mm-hmm. unless you're Henry VIII, because apparently they were fine with it That's for Henry okay VIII. The king, but yeah, but king. yeah, but she's she's not the king, so she can't get married. So they did find a Church of Scotland vicar named Reverend Scott who had. Uh, been vacationing in Norway and had missed all of the press surrounding their inability to get married, and he just agreed to okay, do the ceremony. Do all right, whatever. I'm not paying attention. Whatever. It's all right. I don't even care. So on you August 12th, <laughs> yeah, you're like I'm getting paid. Whatever. Paid? I don't care. All right. On August 12th, they uh, had a wedding ceremony. Uh, Isolda was the maid of honor. Peter's brother Patrick was the best man, and Edgar, having won the contest, uh, the coin toss, got to give Angela away. 
Okay, yeah, because yeah, Edgar Jr. and Bruce were fighting over who would get to give her away, and they just did a coin does. Nah, they they've already upset the Church of England. They don't want to like they don't want to jinx they don't want to jinx the Church of Scotland as well. Like not even her father though. Doesn't matter. They had a two week honeymoon in France before she had to return to L.A. to work for MGM. In the 1950s, the film industry was changing as television gained popularity. And in 1950, Angela opted out of her contract with MGM and left for England. What? Yeah, she was she was sick of the bit parts. She was sick of the bit parts. She wanted to get back into theater. Um, They boomerang directly back to L.A. upon realizing that Angela was pregnant. So they they went to England and they're like, oh, I'm pregnant. Let's go back to L.A. Why? I don't know, because uh, I guess Peter Shaw had more work in L.A. U.S. citizenship, but he wasn't an actor, though. No, but he had other jobs. What was he doing again? Um, A few things. We're going to get into his fun, fun career. He he has a kind of a episodic career. So they bought a cute little bungalow in Encino and it had a small guest cottage and a swimming pool. And they stayed there for the next few years. Peters tried to start up a literary agency called uh, Stromberg, Schaefer, and Shaw. Uh, the agency did not receive as much success as the founders had hoped, but he did learn the ins and outs of being an agent. So Peter left Str- uh, Stromberg, Schaefer, and Shaw and joined a Paul Small agency, which was a boutique personal management firm, and bounced around to a few different uh, companies, but worked largely as an, act- an agent for actors. Mm. He never, however, officially worked as Angela Lansbury's agent. He wanted to keep that professional be weird and personal line. Yeah, that. he didn't want to do that. Don't be managed by your mother. <laughs> so, well, it was her husband. No, I'm talking about the same thing with like people that get managed yeah. by their mother. Yeah, it, it's weird. Don't don't sinful. cross the, fa- the family up, and professional up, borders. End up like emancipating <laughs> from your parents, steal all your money. All right. So, on January 2nd of 1952, Angela gave birth to Anthony Peter, and domestic life was happy, but without Angela's MGM contract, uh, they did not have a lot of money. Peter was not bringing in the salary that they had grown accustomed to back when Angela was working for MGM. Um, When she had the opportunity to guest star in East Coast Summerstock production of The Gramercy Ghost and Affairs of State, she jumped at the chance. She toured all over New England with the two plays, one week each um, and she brought baby Anthony and a nurse along with her so that she could continue to care for the infant and nurse the infant while she was on tour mm. you know just as a working mom utmost respect like utmost respect it is so hard when those kids are babies and you still have to go to work but just well she had help though. she yeah but she's also quite you, a woman you didn't have help. yeah I had you Meh. Meh. I know she had Peter so yeah. this was her first return to the stage since her time at school at Fegan and by April 26, 1953, Angela gave birth to Deirdre. I think it's Deirdre. Deirdre? That's how you say Deirdre. Okay, Deirdre. Deirdre Angela. So, in April 26, 1953, Angela gave birth to Deirdre. Also in the early 1950s, Peter gained custody of his son, David. Remember he had a son from his first marriage? Nope. Nope, totally forgot. Everybody needs to stop marrying everybody yeah, else. Yeah, too many people. Like just do what just do what Lucky Forbes and Moina did and just live together. No, that was Kay. That was uh, Lucky Forbes' wife. Oh, (laughs) you're just mixing everybody up. So um, they decided that they needed an even bigger house because they now had three kids living with them, Um, and they had a very very happy home life. But she described this Angela described this time professionally as a new all time low point. She was not acting very much. And the parts that she had were bit parts in films that she didn't particularly enjoy. Mm. While many other actors would have loved those parts, she just felt like she could do better. Underutilized. She was. She really, really was in her film industries. Mm. I mean, the stage loved her. Television loved her. Films she just... She had an odd look about her. Yeah. She looked like Betty Grable. But she was but she such a great eyes. character actress. Yeah. Like, she... Just worked but so that's, hard that's to understand hard to be, the characters. That's hard. Character actors are not leading people. They're always yeah, supporting cast members. She was a great leading person in stage and in television. Yeah. So, anyways, in 1956, uh, she was cast in the role of Princess Gwendolyn in the farce *The Court Jester* by Danny Kaye. Uh, this was her first truly comedic role, and she loved the opportunity to perform as a comedian. 
The display of her comic talent led to an offer from Peter Glenville for Angela to perform on Broadway in the Hotel Paradiso. At first, she vigorously declined because she wanted to spend more time with her kids, but Peter was very encouraging, and the play opened on April 12, 1956, to great acclaim. In 1958, Angela appeared in the film The Long Hot Summer with William Ings, uh, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and The Dark at the Top of the Stairs was Angela's first on-screen kiss. After having spent 10 years working in films and doing 25 different movies, uh, she finally got her first on-screen kiss. Mm. In 1959, she was cast as Elvis Presley's mother in Blue Hawaii. She was only 10 years older than Elvis <laughs> Presley at the time. Still still being cast they way still, off her they age. Still do that yeah. She also played the mother in The Manchurian Candidate, for which she earned her third Academy Award nomination. Um, she loved playing the character. She's quoted as saying, uh, The character was so destroyed by evil that she appears to be disintegrating before your very eyes. Mm. So she loved, you know getting in touch with that kind of darker character. Mm -hmm. In 1960, Angela started receiving calls from New York to act in Broadway play called the, A Taste of Honey, written by Sheila Delaney and produced by David Merrick. David Merrick was known as the abominable showman. Uh, she didn't want the role, but again, Peter, her husband, urged her um, with a stipulation that she would only have a six-month contract this was very, very rare in Broadway. They usually did two-year contracts, but she only wanted a six-month contract, and they really wanted her to play, so they signed her. Um, once the play was up and running, the kids, Anthony and Dee Dee, were moved to stay with Angela and their nanny, Jane Fife. Now, the 60s was also a great time for Peter's career. Really, really began to take off. He was working as an agent, and he was on set one day with his client, Sir Carl, Carol Reed, who managed to get into a fight with Marlon Brando. The two men were arguing and screaming at each other, and Peter was able to step in, and with his tact and diplomacy, he was able to get them both to calm down and just get back to work and reshoot the scene. Um, Sol Siegel, the then head of MGM, saw Peter Shaw and was very impressed by how he was able to control the hot-headed actors and hired um, Peter Shaw as his own personal executive assistant. After a little over six months, Peter had been promoted to second in command oh, at MGM shit. and was placed in charge of all talent. That's pretty good. So, I mean, he was he was really, really great. He was making some money. Yeah. He was great at uh, managing the talent and working with the actors. Now, in 1965, James Aubrey was fired from CBS and took over at MGM. And a friend of Peter said, get the hell out of there now. Don't work with James Aubrey. Okay. And so Peter did. He went back to working as a talent agent. Um, and he said later on that he's really, really glad that he did. Mm. Peter never formally represented Angela, as I said, but he did help negotiate a lot of her contracts, including her contract for murder, she wrote. Mm. Now, for Angela, in 1962, she played the mother of Lawrence Harvey in The Manchurian Candidate, which she earned the Academy Award nomination, and she was just three years older than Lawrence. Mm. Um, in 1964... She put her film career on hold after receiving a letter from Arthur Lawrence, the author of the Broadway musical West Side Story and Gypsy, asking if she would be interested in joining Stephen Sondheim in making a Broadway musical. She said, hell yeah, I want to go make yeah. some Broadway musicals. She loved musical theater. Um, she auditioned for Lawrence and Sondheim with A Foggy Day in London and was hired on the spot to act in Anyone Can Whistle, which was a flop just hugely disappointing people did not like this film they this play they didn't get it it wasn't a great musical um she was regularly cited by critics as the only bright spot that her performance was great but um you know she was a musical comedy queen but the play itself wasn't great she did however foster some great professional relations with both Sondheim and Lorenz which provided a platform for her launching her Broadway career. After a remarkably frustrating audition uh, that took over a year and involved three round trips from California to New York, Angela was cast in the part of Mame in Mame, a musical by Jerome Lawrence and Robert Edwin Lee. Mame opened in 1966 to great acclaim. Uh, through Mame, Angela established herself as a musical star and even won an Antoinette Perry Award as the best actress in a musical. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers did not believe Angela Lansbury's name could carry the movie, so they hired Lucille Ball to star in the film. Nah. That's, yeah. 
Angela continued to work with Lawrence and Lee on Dear World, an adaptation of the play The Mad Woman of Charlotte by Jean Gerdeau, opening in 1969. Which leads us to the 1970s. Closer. (laughs) So about 50 years. Yeah. In 1971, Angela played Miss Price in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the perennial was... child's movie. Oh, yes, okay, you love movie. that movie. It was good. Yes, it was a great I movie. Re- I don't remember much of it, except for like the knights and stuff. Yeah. Don't they and, ride on a bed? And the iconic Miss Lansbury. I guess. Yeah. So in the late 60s and early 1970s, uh, a permissive sexual and social revolution for America's youth uh, hit Malibu and the... And young Anthony and Dee Dee were both swept up in the Malibu drug culture. Um, Anthony became addicted to both cocaine oh, and shit. heroin and has spoken frankly in interviews about his addiction and his eventual recovery and the long road that it took and the support that he received from both of his parents in that time. In September of 1971, a California brush fire engulfed the Shaw home. So uh, they lost everything. Oh. Angela was able to rescue the family cat, Nosy and tossed some of their more valuable objects in the swimming pool before she had to flee to their neighbor's plot to uh, avoid getting burned. But they lost their photo albums, their books, just Mm. everything from their Malibu, from their California home. And after such an intense loss and all of the ills that Malibu had brought on to her children, Angela and Peter decided that they were just going to spend some time in Ireland. They're just going to Uh, The place she went to heal after the loss of her father, she wanted to take her kids there to help take care of them. They found a 20-acre property near Cork and moved, and the move was apparently a brilliant move. Both Dee Dee and Anthony improved their health and were able to kick their drug habits. Dee Dee was able to get a job. Anthony started an acting school at Weber Douglas Academy of Dramatic Arts, which you might remember that's where Angela went. So her old alma mater. I forgot. (laughs) <laughs> okay, it's she's got quite a life story. Yeah. This is one heck of a life story. Um, All right. In 1973, Angela got a call from author Lawrence asking her to play the lead in Gypsy. And she had some major, major reservations because in her mind, Gypsy was always Ethel Merman's. 1959 performance could not be topped. She was just, it was Ethel Merman's part forever. Um, she debated a lot about it and decided that if it was going to be a success, she needed to put her own spin on it. She could not outsing Ethel Merman, but Ethel Merman could not outact her. Mm-hmm. She needed to do this her way. Um, she ended up taking the part um, and having it opened on May 29th of 1973 in the Piccadilly Theater in West End, and she received a 15-minute standing ovation. Mm-hmm. This is good. unheard of in the British theaters. Um, the play went on tour and was a huge success. In November of 1975, Moyna McGill died of esophageal cancer so in 1979. <laughs> Just like this. Good job with the play. Mom's dead two years later. Well, I mean, this is kind of her life. Okay. It's like, your job's going well. Oh, your house is on fire. This now is, you're in Ireland and everybody's happy. Later, and you're she doing great. And then, some other stuff, but yeah, you don't know year to year with. Yeah, she's she's also taking care of her family, yeah. learning to cook, taking care of her kids. Because the kids are what, about 20-something years old? Yeah. Time. So... While Angela continued to work sporadically throughout the mid to late 1970s, her next major musical theater role came in 1979 as Nellie Lovett in Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. It is the bigger. Yeah, it's not your typical Broadway fair. And it forced Angela to perform many difficult, chattering rhythmic and tonal changes and tongue twisting lyrics. The role was a great opportunity to perform for her Cockney roots. Um, she was very, very gifted at different dialects. I think that having moved around and living in London and having an Irish family and, you know, just she was very, very good at adopting different uh, accents and dialects. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went on, the show went on to win eight Tony Awards, including one for Lansbury, and was eventually videotaped and successfully broadcast on cable. In the early 1980s, Isolda was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. 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 Lugaric disease. Yes. In early 1980s, Isolda was diagnosed with ALS, otherwise known as Lugaric's disease. So Angela spent every summer visiting Ireland Ireland, uh, and helping with Derek and Tamara to take care of Isolda until Isolda died in 1987. Mm -hmm. In 1984, 
uh, Angela started looking for TV parts. She wanted to switch away from the theater and to television. This was largely Peter Shaw's idea. He saw television as the more profitable opportunity and requiring less travel than the touring theater groups. So it was, you know, with his encouragement that she went into television. She was offered two different shows. One was a sitcom, and she said that the characters seemed boring. And the other was Murder, she wrote. Mm -hmm. So, in 1984, she began the 12-year journey of starring as Jessica Fletcher, a retired widow English teacher that fills her days writing mystery novels and solving murders. <laughs> of course! Like, what else are you going to do with your days? They did that with Castle. Yeah. comes on later. Yeah. Let's just get a writer. Let's just get a writer to solve, solve, solve murders. murders. It's, it's great. Easy, you guys. All right. So, what? so, once the series was underway, uh, Angela became a household name. The family-friendly Sunday night murder drama was a hit throughout the U.S. And that's really hard to do, like a family-friendly murder drama. They did it with Psych, they did it with Monk, they did it with Murder, She Wrote. Like, it's well, it's great when they manage it. Shows, yeah, right? it's murder drama. Yeah. So, while working on Murder, She Wrote, Angela still managed to make films and receive other honors. In 1994, then Prince Charles, now King, came to Los Angeles and awarded Lansbury the title of Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. She also starred as Mrs. Potts in the animated film Beauty and the Beast. This was her only leading lady role in yeah, film. She recorded. Yeah. yeah, she successfully recorded the movie's theme song after only one take, after having been up all night and being sick and taking a train ride to the mm -hmm. and just like, arriving perfect. at the recording studio. Perfect. That's one it. shot. That's all we need. Perfect. Cool. So. Go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Each year when Murder She Wrote was on hiatus, uh, she and Peter Shaw would return to Cork. Um, eventually having a house built in the town of Ballywilliam. They would go and visit Dee Dee and see Isolde and just visit with family. In later years, Angela became executive producer on Murder, She Wrote and would use her title to hire old friends uh, from the film and theater industries that were out of work or were losing jobs. It's really nice of her to do that. So you know, they keep their benefits by doing that. Yeah, there, that was one thing that always struck me about Murder, She Wrote, is there was this huge social network for Jessica Fletcher. Just She knew everybody. And when I'm reading about Angela's life, their social network saved them. They, they're knowing somebody in America who could take them. They're meeting Lady Norton to get onto the RMS, uh, Duchess Athol. I mean, their social network no. is what kept them buoyed for those three years when they had literally nothing i guess yeah so peter shaw uh, assumed the role of chief strategist angela referred to him as the power behind the throne she was the public face and the talent but he strategized on her behalf and ensured the continued success of her career in 1987 peter shaw founded Corey Moore Productions at Universal Studios and negotiated the Deal of Deals, receiving contracts to produce Murder, She Wrote, and several TV movies starring Angela Lansbury. Peter's sons, Anthony and David, worked at Corey Moore Productions for years, but when Peter died in 2003 at the age of 85, Corey Moore stopped producing. No. In a decision that hurt and upset Angela for years afterwards, in 1995, CBS decided to move Murder, She Wrote from its Sunday night time slot and replace it with Sybil <laughs> in the hopes of attracting a younger audience. Good call. Right. What yeah. a horrible decision. Yeah. Um, the move proved a death sentence for the show, and it went off air in 1996. Angela continually insisted that Sunday night was family night, and the majority of their audience was families watching together. That The move mm -hmm. was the dumbest thing they could have done for that show. In a farewell to her viewers, Angela wrote, Tonight you have watched our last and final weekly episode. My gratitude and appreciation to all of you, our last and great family of viewers who, along with me, have solved 264 murder mysteries over 12 great years. With love, Jessica Fletcher. Angela received 12 nominations for an Emmy Award for her role as Jessica Fletcher, but never actually won any. She, she was robbed. Yeah. Um... After the 12th year of the show, uh, Angela was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. Mm. In 1997, she was awarded the National Medal of the Arts by President Bill Clinton. And in 2013, the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences awarded her an Oscar and a Lifetime Achievement Award in recognition of her long and distinguished career. In April 2014, Angela opened at the Guild Theater in the West End to play Madame Mercati in Noel Coward's play, Blythe Spirit. The Guild Theater was originally named Globe Theater, and it's the very same theater where Moyna McGill made her theatrical debut in 1918 production Love in a Cottage. 
For Angela, this performance completed the cycle in her relationship with her mother, essentially saying we did it. On April 15th, 2014, in a ceremony at Windsor Castle, Angela was given the official title of Dame Angela from Queen Elizabeth. In an interview, Angela stated that the most remarkable thing about her career is that she has managed to stay relevant. Her final appearance occurred as cameo in the 2022 Netflix original film, Glass Onion. After a career spanning eight decades, Dame Angela Lansbury died peacefully in her sleep on October 11th, 2022, just five days before her 97th birthday. Cool. Just an incredible life. Very long life. I don't know if I want to live to be 97. I'm That's... probably going to outlive you by a lot. Of course. Yeah. You have right. so much exercise. high blood pressure. <laughs> don't have high blood pressure? You have heartburn. I do have You're heartburn. You're literally complaining about your heartburn. I have heartburn right now because I ate something yesterday. <laughs> that, that is one thing that I, I did like about uh, Jessica Fletcher's character, she exercised every day. Just barely exercised. She jogged. Every day. She you jogged. barely jog. She, she walked you, fast. You walk fast. Called, is it speed walking? Is that what it's yeah. Called? All right. So, that is the wonderful life of an amazing actress. And if you are not familiar with her body of work, then uh, you, you know have several you things. You have look. several things to watch. You yeah, you want you classic. Got... You want musicals. Sweeney Todd. Yes, I her singing Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, all one take. That's See her performance of Sweeney Todd. It's it's really impressive. Yeah. All Copy right. Accent. Well. All right. Thanks thank for joining you. us. Thank you for joining us. I and hope you have a great rest of the day. Peace out. Peace out.